Well, good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for your uh, invitation. I bring you greetings uh, from those at Tinder House in Cambridge, England. We're not Tinder House, the publisher. That, that's different. That's in Illinois. But in, in Cambridge, England, so in the square mile where the electron and DNA were discovered, there's a little center of people who are Bible freaks and geeks. We absolutely love Jesus, and we study the Scripture together, and we have the UK's best library of the Bible. So, when you're in our neck of the woods, come and see us. We'll be doing a bit of construction work over the next couple of years, so you can come and see a building site, but also we're going to keep the geeks uh, going. And if you would like to find out more, you can follow us, friendsoftinderhouse.com. We've got a 501c3, or just ask me for a card. You can sign up, and we've got newsletters, we've got a free magazine, and we've got videos, uh, which will help people understand and trust the Bible. Well, I want to share with you something that's been on my heart for a while. I've actually been looking at Luke chapter 15 for a while, and I've actually brought out a book on it, on the surprising genius of Jesus. And I want to show you this morning just how brilliant our Lord Jesus Christ is in his teaching, and that he's the best person we could have guiding us as to how we should live. So I want us to look together at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to study this in some depth. So let's read God's Word together. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1, and in the Church Bibles, it's page 886. Okay, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Well, what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her women, friends, and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled into a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his film from the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? 
I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with fruits, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's an amazing scene. There are four groups of people listening to Jesus. That's verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors, sinners, scribes, and Pharisees. Let's go through them. Tax collectors, they're people who take your money. Worse than that, you are going to donate some of that money to the temple, and they're taking some of your money to pay for the Roman soldiers to keep oppressing you so that you're not free. So if you're a righteous Jew, you're pretty annoyed at tax collectors. That's good. Then there are sinners. Well, what are sinners? Well, we're all sinners. Okay. But these are like special sinners. They're such sinners, they get it as their identity. That's how they're publicly seen. Sinners, people who are flagrant rule breakers, rather than just us who just, you know, try not to be too flagrant about it and get caught too many times. Right? Those are Tax collectors and sinners. We don't expect them to know the Bible very well. They shouldn't take that much interest in the Bible. But the other two groups, they do. The Pharisees. What are Pharisees? Pharisee means separator. Okay, they separate from sin. They're the polar opposite of sinners. They are spending all of their time trying to make sure that no bits of sin ever catch them, right? Now, there's a problem with that, of course, because sin comes from within. But their basic idea is they're the opposite of that. They're spending their time studying the Bible to make sure they don't sin. And they also follow the traditions to try and avoid sin. Scribes. Well, they could write a legal document for you. But a lot of the time, they're going to spend their time writing out the Bible. Now, when you write out the Bible by hand, that means you know the Bible super well. And they actually have to distinguish similar phrases in the Bible to make sure they don't confuse them when they copy them. So they know the Bible super, super well. 
And Jesus tells a story which is a bit like a Pixar movie. You know, Pixar movies have those things that are there for the parents and grandparents and not for the kids. Yeah? And Jesus tells a story that works like that, that if you don't know the Bible at all, it works amazingly. And if you do, it also works at deeper levels. But actually, it's a three-part story. Notice how verse 3 says it's a parable, and then he tells three stories. And you think, there's a mathematical problem there. I mean, how can you call it a parable, and then there are three? Because actually, the three go together. Anyone played Sudoku here? Yeah, okay, you've got something for you this morning. Because in Sudoku, you use the numbers that you're given to supply the numbers you're not given, okay? Now, with these three stories, we are not given the ending of the third story. We're not actually told how the older brother responds, are we? Ah, but we can do Sudoku. So, guess what happens? We got a story of a sheep that goes away from home and then is found, and when it's found, there's rejoicing. Great. But it's lost away from home. Then we got a story of a coin lost at home, and when it's found, there's rejoicing. Then we got a story of a son who goes away from home and comes back, and when he comes back, there's rejoicing. Then we got a story of a son who's at home, and we don't know. It never says he's lost, but we can use the fact that the other three are lost to work out he's lost. The coin was lost at home, and when it was found, there was rejoicing. If that older brother comes in, there will be celebration. But does he come in? And the story ends without telling us how it ends. Because it's an invitation to those in that category to come in and celebrate. With that final section, the final bit about the two sons, it's the longest section by far. And in a lot of ways, the first two stories are like warm-up stories. That's not to belittle them. They're really important stories. But they're building up because we know that sons are far more important than sheep or coins. And if you go from 1% lost to 10% lost, what might the final percentage be? 100% lost. You see, both of those sons in that final story are lost. And one's come back and there's great celebration. Is the other one going to come in or not? And so there's an invitation there. 62% of the final story is about the younger son. 38 about the older son. And I want to put the weight on that younger son, as we should. That invitation to those who go astray, those who go away from their father, those who go away from God, to know that he is there waiting to welcome you back. But there's also this invitation to those who are room keepers, who don't seem to have gone so far astray. They need to come in too. Did you notice how the stories cleverly use the word near and far? How what we've got is this son who goes into a far country. And the father sees him when he's still afar off. He's the son who's far. Then the older son comes near. And yet the funny thing is, though he's so near, he's so far. Notice the way every word in this story counts. All three times the younger son talks to his father, what's the first word from his mouth? It's father. Twice out loud and once in a rehearsed speech in his head. 
first thing he says is father. Notice the missing word from this older brother's speech. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. The brilliance of Jesus' story to tell you something by missing out a word. He's been physically close to his father all of this time, and he's emotionally miles away. And that could be us. You could be miles away from God in church. You could seem so close, never breaking the rules, and yet you're so distant. And so this story is so powerful because it speaks to everyone. Those who are in flagrant breach and obviously going away from God, God's like the Father, waiting to have you back and waiting to throw a huge celebration, a fatted calf, four or five hundred portions of meat, and inviting everyone. That's what God wants. And when it says, the Father saw him afar off, what are you to conclude from that? Two possibilities. It was a complete fluke. The Father just happened to look out of the house at the one time that the Son happened to be returning. But you think, nah. Nah, it wasn't a fluke. He was looking out all the time, wasn't he? And then he runs. An old man runs towards his son, embracing, kissing, once puts the robe on him, showing that he is publicly accepted fully. There's no probation period. Hey, son, we're going to start you on a small job on the farm and gradually work up, and eventually, after a few years, you might get son status back. No, he gives him a ring. That's like a credit card. That's crazy. That's crazy. This is amazing generosity, and that's how God is. He doesn't wait for you to do probation. You come back, you are his child. Full child, instantly. Full rights, instantly. Full access to the Father, instantly. So let's go through this story. I want to start just noticing what's so clever about Jesus' story of the two sons starting there at verse 12. The younger of them says to his father, Father. So the first word is clever. Already it's showing you how he comes to his father. Give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he's distributed his assets to them. Had you noticed that? Both of them? Wow! Big brother did so well out of this. He should be so pleased. Little brother, I am so glad you did the dirty work of going to dad and asking him for the assets. And I landed a jackpot. As a result, I get early inheritance. Thank you, little bro. If ever you need anything, I'm just there for you because I'm so glad you did that. That's the way he should respond, isn't it? Now, of course, what country does this story take place in? We don't know. It's a story. But if it took place in Israel... Under the law of the Old Testament, the oldest brother gets double. And in fact, usually when there are farms involved, you don't just split them into ever smaller portions as you go down the generations. Oldest brother gets the whole farm. So this older brother does amazingly well. Then the younger son gathers that movable stuff, which is probably far less, but it's still a lot. 
and goes off into a distant country. He wants to get away and have a good time. And there it said he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus tells two stories in a row about people who waste money. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. Two stories of wasters in a row. Now, how do you feel about people who waste money? Not good. Yeah? Any taxpayers here? Yeah? How do you feel about wasted tax money? What's the emotion you feel? Boo, you, you feel anger, right? So Jesus is telling stories about, two stories about people who waste money. Who's in the audience? We know there are Pharisees there. And what do they think about this? Chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. You see, the Pharisees kept the rules, but they also liked their money, okay? So the emotion they feel is anger. When this younger son wastes the money that the father's given him, that father had built up that, that asset over a long time. How long does it take for that younger son to waste the money? Oh, not long. How, how quickly can you spend money? Some people can spend it really, really quickly and have absolutely zip to show for it at the end. It's really phenomenal. And there are so many different ways of wasting money. But what's interesting is, how does Jesus describe the way he spends it? Foolish living, it's actually just done in one word in the Greek. That's really interesting, because we might want to go into the details. In fact, when people retell this story, they always go into the details. People make 19th century novels, and the big central section is all about how the guy wasted the money. That's how people retell the story. Jesus is a better storyteller than that. So he doesn't glamorize that waste he doesn't specify the waste because if you say there's one way of doing it, it makes the story a bit more narrow. It only works for a particular sort of sin. And in fact, you're never better off after hearing a story of sin. Sometimes you need to hear one so you can sympathize with someone, so you can help them. But you're never better off after hearing it, are you? Jesus doesn't waste our time with that. He just does it all with one word. He spent it all. Then, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country. Now, how many of you had noticed the severe famine in this story? Come on, be honest. Had anyone not noticed the severe famine in the story? Anyone? No? You'd all noticed it, right? Yeah? Because some experiments have been done with different groups of people showing that when people are told this story and they're from countries that have not experienced famine, often they don't notice this really, really, really important bit of the story. Because we think of this guy as the prodigal son. The son who is in a bad situation because he made a load of bad decisions. Jesus' story is a bit different. He made a load of bad decisions, but he also happened to be unlucky. He happened to choose to go to the one country on the planet that was struck by a famine at that time. That's bad luck. And that's a very different way of looking at him from the way the older brother is looking at him. The older brother thinks that he's in a difficult situation entirely because of his own decision. He looks out at him and thinks, he just made bad decisions. And sometimes there are people who need our help who have made bad decisions. But don't forget, and I'm not talking theologically here, you understand, there's this luck element too. 
We've often been born in favorable situations. It's not just that we've made better decisions than other people, right? And so this story amazingly lets this guy slightly off the hook, doesn't it? He happened to go to that one country that was hit by famine. So we never get to know what would happen if he had made all those bad decisions and it wasn't a famine situation. But then he went and he went to work for one of the citizens of that country. Now notice how Jesus chooses every word perfectly. That word citizen just rubs in that this younger son doesn't belong there. He doesn't have citizen rights. Who sent him into his fields, notice the plural there, telling you just how rich this guy is, to feed pigs. Now herding animals was the lowest thing you could do. David's big brothers knew that. That's why they sent little bro out to feed the animals. But herding pigs, they're unclean. And this is what's so smart about Jesus' story, one of many things. Because if you're a Pharisee at this point, you think this story is going really well. Because this lad is getting what he deserved. Oh, yeah. He dishonored his father. Now he's feeding pigs. And Jesus gets the audience on side before it's going to turn around. And really start making them uncomfortable. So he's feeding pigs. And he wants pig leftover. Outside husk of the pig leftover. And he doesn't even get that. So he's brought so low. And then he wakes up. And it never tells us how he wakes up. Why he wakes up. But instead the storyteller lets us go straight inside his mind. Because we see his speech to himself. Just like in the very next story of the unjust manager, the guy's speech inside his own head is given to us. And he thinks about this. How many of my father's hired servants, his father is very wealthy, he's got lots of hired servants, they get more than enough. They have leftover at the end of every day. They're not paid minimum wage. They've got more than that. There's an abundance there. Here I am dying of hunger. This is crazy. I'll get up. I'll go to my father. I'll say, I'll be a servant again. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And then his father is looking out at that very moment. He's still a long way off. What sh emotion should the father feel? What should... What do we normally feel about people who waste money? What's the emotion? It's anger, right? That's the emotion we should be expecting the father to feel. Indignation. I spent time building up this farm. I gave you everything. I've been so generous to you. And this is how you repay me? Coming back like this? Not even shoes on you. But how does the father respond? He's filled with compassion. The key thing about compassion, you don't deserve it. It's mercy. It's that love. And the dramatic high point is he runs and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. Notice the father never says a word to this younger son in this entire story. Talks to the servants, talks to the older son. Doesn't say a thing to the younger son, doesn't need to. He said everything with his actions. He said how he's fully accepted back. He doesn't need to say, son, what do you do with the money? What happened? He's just accepted him back. The son then gets to begin the speech, but not finish it. Remember that rehearsed speech had this line about, 
make me like one of your hired servants. He never got to do it. Why does he not get to do it? Because suddenly the pace of the story picks up. And the father interrupts him, and the very first word from the father's mouth is this, quick. All those years he's been looking out, it's been time has passed so slowly, now there isn't a moment to waste. Quick, he says to the servants, quick, bring out the robe, put it on him, bring a ring, bring the, bring the shoes, and kill the fattened calf, and let's celebrate, because this, my son was dead and alive again, he's lost and he's found, and they began to celebrate. Everyone is invited. There's so much meat. It's going to be a great time. And then the older son. He's in the field. It doesn't tell us what he's doing in the field. What's he doing in the field? He's working, isn't he? He's working late. People haven't called him to the party. He's left his cell phone behind. They don't know where he is. He's gone out far into the fields. And so he comes back. Late, and he gets to hear that there's a celebration. And he calls someone, and he asks what's going on. And what's so interesting here is in verse 27, that someone, that servant, gives him an absolutely deadpan, factual account of what's happened. There's no emotion shown by this guy at all. Your brother is here. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now, he may be really happy about that. He may not be happy. We're not told. And that's so brilliant. Jesus has emotional intelligence, right? He's able to, dis- to contrast that non-emotional reply, just full of facts, with the emotions that the father feels and the emotion this son reports. He becomes angry. He doesn't want to go in. So his father comes out, and he replied to his father, look. That missing word doesn't call him father. I've been slaving all these years for you. That's interesting. Whose farm have you been working on all these years? Your own farm. You're a son and you own everything, yet you have the mindset of thinking of yourself as a slave. Every evening you've worked late, you've been building up your own assets, and you think that dad is all mean and you've been slaving for him. That's the first of the seven bits of information we get in here. I never disobeyed your orders, he says. Sort of sounds plausible. He like thinks of dad as just handing out orders the whole time and he doesn't break them. Oh, but dad has just commanded a celebration and he's not coming into that. Yet you never gave me a young goat. Son, I gave you the whole farm with all the goats on it. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Yeah, that's really plausible, isn't it? This is dad who gave the guy the whole farm, has banned meat eating, so you can't eat goats, and banned friends around. Is that really plausible? No. This is a generous dad. He can have his goat, as many goats as he likes to eat, and as many friends around as he likes. So why is he not happy? Who does he want to celebrate with? He wants to celebrate with his friends. Oh, but he can have his friends round. So that doesn't quite explain why he's unhappy. We've got to add the piece of information in. What's missing here? He wants to celebrate with his friends without his dad at the table. You see, that although he's so physically close, 
He actually wants his dad dead. I don't think the younger son wanted his dad dead. He just wanted the inheritance. Okay? But this guy, although he's physically close, doesn't love his dad at all. He wants to celebrate with his friends away from his dad. He can't wait for his father to be out of the way. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, this son of yours, he's your brother. He's denying his relationship. Who's devoured your assets with prostitutes. Fascinating. Has he been sending postcards from the brothel? How do you know? You're just back from the field. You didn't even know why the party was going on. You know nothing of what your brother has been doing. How can you possibly know that his biggest dispense was prostitutes? The storyteller hasn't told us that, has he? What's the one source of information he has? It's his imagination. That's the only possible source of information. Why is he spending his days imagining what his brother's doing? What's on his heart? You see? And then he says, you killed the fattened calf for him. Dude, he can't eat that much meat. <laughs> that fattened calf is for everyone. So all seven bits of information in there are twisted. Son, he said to him, you're always with me. This son had said, never. You never gave me a young girl. I never disobeyed your command. Father replies with always. Everything I have is yours. That is literally true. But we had to celebrate. Because this, your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What an amazing story. Do you think that's an amazing story? Every single word counts. Now, let's go a bit deeper. You see, Jesus is talking to scribes. And Pharisees, who know the Bible super well, begins a story, a man had two sons. Who does that remind you of? The most famous person in the Bible to have two and only two sons, that would be Isaac, wouldn't it? And he had that younger son, Jacob, who cheated the older son, Esau, out of his inheritance. As a result, the older son's really flaming mad with him, so Jacob goes off into a far country and feeds animals. Esau was cheated out of his inheritance. He was angry. Now, this older brother, he's angry. He's angry at the thought that the younger son can just come back. And whose estate is he going to be living off? He's going to be scrounging off me. We know, because we've heard the story, that actually this son is happy to work. He's actually going to be an asset to the farm. But that's not the way the mean older brother thinks. Now, in the story of Jacob and Esau, there is a really surprising thing. Look at Genesis 32 and then 33. Genesis 32 is the story of how Esau is coming towards Jacob with 400 armed men. And Jacob is absolutely petrified. So as a result, he's splitting up his family into different groups so that only one group gets splatted and they don't all get done, right? Then what do you read? Genesis 33 and verse 4, when he finally meets his son... But Esau ran to meet him and hugged him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And they wept. If you're a scribe, you know there is only one text in the Bible where anyone runs, embraces, and kisses someone. That is when Esau, who was cheated out of everything, embraces his little brother. 
it should have been the older brother who was running towards him. That's how the story should have gone, but it wasn't. It was the father who ran. Jesus makes the dramatic high point of the story, the father running, a key part of what was the scribal training. That verse, Genesis 33, verse 4, was one of 15 specific verses the scribes of his day had to learn for particular reasons, the way they, the way they copied it. What an amazing thing. A man had two sons. That might remind you of Adam. He had two sons. He had some more later. Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, the Bible's first family conflict. There's Cain who's out in the field. There's Abel who herds the animals. And then there's the way Cain is envious at the way his younger brother was accepted. He's flaming mad, so mad, so angry. He kills him, even though God reasons like this father figure with him. A man had two sons. That might remind you of Abraham. He had two sons, didn't he? Ishmael, the older brother. Isaac, the younger one. Abraham was the only other father who gave away his inheritance while he's still alive. Do you think the scribes noticed that? Turn back to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, you see, Abraham is the father figure, the ultimate father figure, and three guests come to visit Abraham. So what does Abraham do? Genesis chapter 18 and verse 6. So Abraham ran to the tent and said to Sarah, quick, three measures of fine flour, make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. If you're a scribe, you know the very first time that someone runs in the Bible, it's Abraham, and he's 99 at the time he runs. Don't you think they noticed that? The very first time you get a fatted calf in the Bible, Abraham. The very first time someone says, quick, in the Bible, Abraham. Oh, and the father in Jesus' story, you see? That Jesus' story is using Genesis' greatest hits. All these years I've been slaving for you. That's what Jacob says to Laban, isn't it? I had to work 20 years for your flocks, your wives, your daughters and so on. When this son of yours who's devoured your livelihood with prostitutes came, you killed the fattened calf for him. You never give me a young goat I could celebrate with my friends. When's the only time in the Bible we get friends, goat and prostitute together? That would be Genesis 38, wouldn't it? When... Judah gets together with Tamar dressed up as a prostitute and then sends the payment of the goat via his friend. It's a sordid story in Genesis 38, but it's part of the royal family line that goes to David and to Jesus. It's an important story. There is Judah, from whom the Jews derive their name, sexually misbehaving in the land when his little brother, Joseph, is in a far country resisting Mrs. Potiphar. You see how powerful all of these bits of stories are. Now, when Abraham gives away his inheritance, does he give it to both sons? No, he doesn't. He gives it only to the younger son. Why is that? Because in Genesis chapter 21, when Abraham holds a feast for the younger son, the older son, Ishmael, despises the feast. That's the point when Sarah says he's going to lose inheritance. So you see how it's got a lot of messages to the scribes. If you despise the younger son, if you won't accept 
that these people who just cheated you out of taxes, these people who've been sinning all their lives, can come to God and be his children. You can't be his children. Abraham welcomed complete strangers. Laban had to accept that Jacob was going to be blessed. Oh, and what about the ring and the robe in the story? When does someone suddenly get a ring and a robe? That would be Joseph, wouldn't it? When he suddenly comes out of prison before Pharaoh. The only other son that the father thought was dead and alive again. Wow. You mean Jesus ran all of Genesis' greatest hits into one story? Yeah. In such a way that if you don't know Genesis, the story still works. Now, this is real cleverness. The simplicity of Jesus' teaching. He said to the Pharisees of his time, you take away the keys of knowledge. What a lot of clever people do is they lock knowledge away. That's what they do. They lock it away. Jesus speaks simply, and he opens it up for people. Such that if you don't know the Bible, that story will go to any country in the world and it will work. But if you do know the Bible, it's got extra layers of meaning. And that's why one of the things I want you to go away with is just a sense of the awesomeness of Jesus Christ and his teaching and how we need to be devoted to everything he says. Because he's got such a lot to teach us. What an amazing Lord. Emotional intelligence, intellectual intelligence, but above all this, he loves us. And he loves us so much that he himself would give up the throne of glory and go to the cross knowing, knowing how much it would cost, knowing the pain it would be. He felt compassion to us. And whether you are far away from God or whether you're physically close up but distant in your heart, there's an invitation today to come and know that God wants a deeper relationship with you and he wants to celebrate. Let's just pray. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his teaching and we thank you for your compassion. And we pray, Lord, that you will call each one of us to know you deeply. Draw us to you. We need you. And we thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.